The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about eco-heroes, Claire Patterson and Herb Needleman, who are getting the lead out of the environment and out of our bodies and out of all kinds of important places. Uh, with me today is Lenny Armstrong. Hello, Lenny. Hello, Rob. Lenny has a passion for representing climate change visually, and she founded in motion a graphics company creating scientific visualization of complex processes. And Lenny, you approached me because you've been uh, learning a lot and, and uh, become kind of an expert on Claire and Herb Needleman. And, and why these two men? Well, Rob, these two men shared a common passion about the dangers of lead. And not only that, they devoted their lives to finding out just how much lead was in the environment, where it was coming from, and how it was making people sick. Both men were willing to go to battle to get the lead out of the environment to protect public health which they believed came before corporate interests. Claire Patterson was a West Coast geochemist, and Herb Needleman is an East Coast pediatrician. And how did you discover these two scientists? I was reading Bill Bryson's book, A Brief History of Nearly Everything, and he devoted perhaps a paragraph to Claire Patterson. And I was so intrigued by the man and his work that I kept pulling on strings until I found another book. This one was called Toxic Truth by Lydia Denworth. And in that, her book, I learned about Herb Needleman, whose life's work was to look at the effects of lead on human health. Both men were major forces in the battle to get lead out of the environment. Toward the end of our conversation today, I'm going to draw some comparisons and contrasts with a similar story that we're seeing today with CO2 in the atmosphere, which is resulting in climate change. Yeah, we're very interested in climate change and what can be done to address those problems. And so I'm really glad that you've taken the time to come on the show to uh, tell us about some people who went before and to kind of set the stage for addressing climate change. Uh, let's spend some time talking about Claire Patterson. How did he get interested in science? Well, Claire was born in 1922 on a small farm town in Iowa. And when he asked his mother, why is a drop of water round? She got it, that he was really interested in the world of the unseen. So to encourage this curiosity in him, she bought him chemicals. And in the seventh grade, he had his own laboratory in the basement. 
from there on in, Claire taught himself chemistry. And so he went on to university, right? Indeed he did. His travels took him to the University of Chicago, where he did his doctoral work in the chemistry department. There he found a geochemistry professor that really inspired him, and this professor um, became his research advisor. Now, this particular advisor was known for encouraging students to explore uncharted territory. He challenged Claire to measure the geologic age of a common mineral called zircon. Now, zircon contains uranium, and uranium is radioactive or unstable. This means it decays to lead at a slow but measurable rate, and this rate can determine the age um, by measuring. You have to measure how much has decayed. Now, it turns out that this was a very tough technical challenge. The amounts of lead in the crystal were 1,000 times smaller than anyone had measured before. It is remarkable how scientists were able to reduce rocks to zircon crystals to, to learn more about them like this. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't his only challenge, was it? No. With this particular advisor, he challenged Claire to yet another challenge, and this, is, this time he asked Claire to determine the age of Earth. He wanted him to use the same techniques that he worked out with the zircon crystals, but this time he, could, he would look at iron meteorites. Now, the assumption behind this is that the lead from iron meteorites was the same lead that was in the solar system when it was first formed. So at this time, this particular project was the holy grail of geochemistry. It was supposed to be a quick trip to fame, but instead it turned into a long detour. Claire had already calculated the age of the zircon crystals by how much of the uranium should have decayed to lead isotopes. But when he did his measurements, the results never added up. So here he goes on a long quest to find something that turns out to be a longer quest than he expected. Wait, what was the problem? Well, there was always too much lead in his sample. And he could only assume that there was contamination in the lab water, the beakers, and as he went on, he even found out that it was in his own hair. So his question, of course, was where was it coming from? And in order to answer this question, which is part of the detour, he was forced to build the first clean lab. So now, once he had his clean lab, the people that he had to work for him, he had to uh, require them to remove shoes and wear lab coats. And then eventually, they had to strip down to their underwear and put on special suits. Because of the contamination in the laboratory, it took six years but after those six years, he did indeed measure the lead and zircon crystals, and he got his Ph.D. So he goes on um, with a Ph.D. He hasn't really solved the problem that was put forward to him, which, you know, he solved the lead contamination problem. He found out that there was lead in the environment, that it wasn't just coming out of meteors and stuff, but and, and other things that he learned from the zircon crystals. So how did he solve the mystery of the age of the Earth? Well, he spent yet one more year. Now he's a postdoc at Caltech, and he determined the age, using these techniques that he learned with Zircon, he determined the age of Earth to be 4.55 billion years, and this number remains accurate even today. He said, 
the discovery electrified my soul. The next day, he drove to his parents' house, and he was so excited, he thought he was having a heart attack. His mother took him to the hospital, and they found nothing wrong. It took 10 years for his wonderful new number to appear in geology textbooks, and several decades later, he received recognition for his great accomplishment. Now, at this point, he realized that the contamination in his lab wasn't a measurement error, and it must be coming from the environment. But from where? Next, he made it his personal mission to find out. 4.55 billion years old for planet Earth. Yeah. That was quite a remarkable finding. Indeed. Uh, And it's one that we're all taught ever since. Right. And yet he goes from the, you know, ancient oldness of the world to the mundane of, you know, what's this lead stuff that's everywhere? What, what's bad about having lead contamination? Well, I'm going to... Tell us about lead. What, what is lead? Yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's a soft metal with lubricating properties, and it's found underground, oftentimes along with other metals, such as copper and silver. It's mined all over the globe. And since the 1850s, it was known to be a neurotoxin. Um, At this point, lead was added to paint to make it go on more smoothly. And then in 1924, General Motors started to put lead in gasoline. They did this to prevent car engines from knocking. But Claire wanted to know how much lead was in the environment. So next, he decided to measure it in the ocean. It turns out that deep ocean waters mix very slowly over thousands of years. And so he took samples of ocean water at various depths. His results told him that in the deeper layers, there was only small amounts of lead. And as he traveled up through the layers, there was more and more lead. And the lead levels that he measured were proportionate to the lead added to gasoline. So he now tracked the rise of lead in the environment over time. And um, now one decade after he established his ultra-clean lab in order to do this, he um, put out, he published a paper linking lead contamination in oceans to leaded gasoline. So now it was clear that the leaded gasoline used in cars was polluting the oceans all over the planet. The American Petroleum Institute had been funding his work, and as soon as his publication came out, they immediately canceled his research funding. And from this point on, the battle lines were drawn. So what next? Now that he knew that there was far more lead in the oceans than in the ancient past, he wanted to know if the same was true inside the human body. So he went and looked at results of bones in ancient Peruvians, and he found that the average American in 1965 had 100 times more lead than his ancient ancestors. Now, Claire had no problems laying the blame on the lead industry. The current policy of the industry was that either the lead worker is either perfectly healthy or poisoned with lead. It didn't make sense to Claire who suspected that even low levels of lead were dangerous. He firmly believed that public health came before economic interests. But 
what level of lead in the environment was natural? He said, my science got entangled with social problems. It threatened the beauty of my refuge, but there was no way out. No, I guess there wasn't. He was, you know, first he found that the lead was not so much deep in the water because it was old water, ancient ocean water. And then when he got to today's ocean water, he found that it had increased coincidentally with the increase of putting lead in the gasoline. At about the same decade of water, you see this jump up in lead levels. And then he finds it in the bones that are high. What, What next? Well, he didn't stop there. And then next, his research took him to Greenland and Antarctica, where he measured lead in ice and snow. And now he wanted to know another question. How much lead was in the atmosphere before the Industrial Revolution? His results told him that in the northern hemisphere during the Revolution, there was a rise in lead of a total of 750%, and the largest um, rise corresponded with the addition of lead and gas. And then, as if that weren't enough, he looked at lead throughout the food chain. He traveled to a very difficult-to-reach canyon in Yosemite and found that uh, as he looked for lead throughout the life cycle, he found that the whole area, as remote as it was, was heavily polluted with industrial lead. When Claire Clean came to Caltech, they gave him the title geochemist. And then shortly afterwards, they offered him tenure. But he refused the title, salary, and the benefits that went with it because he didn't believe in department hierarchy. Tenure was antithetical to good science, he said. But 36 years after arriving at Caltech and just three years before he retired, Claire had mellowed. And when they gave him a second offer, he accepted it, and along with an apology for refusing the first time. So he became a geochemist at the very end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no doubt he came up against some opposition along the way. What, who and what was that? Well, about the time that Claire was born, Ethel Gasoline Company hired Dr. Kehoe to be their company doctor. Kehoe was hired soon after the deaths of 15 factory workers. The symptoms of these men started with hallucinations. Standard Oil said these men probably went insane because they worked too hard. Kehoe's job was to care for the workers and to more fully investigate the dangers of tetraethyl lead. For 40 years, he was the main spokesman for the lead industry on health issues. And how did the battle enter the legal system? In 1966, Senator Edward Muskie called a hearing. And in this hearing, Kehoe testified that he still found no harmful effects to the general public from the burning of leaded gasoline. Muskie questioned Claire as to why the fossil fuel industries had not made the distinction between natural and typical lead levels, saying... It seems such a logical approach to a lawyer. Patterson replied, not if your purpose is to sell lead. Claire never backed down. He passed away in 1995 at the age of 73, but his work, along with the work of my second eco-hero, continues on even today. Well, Claire Patterson was quite the person, quite the geochemist who kept 
you know, going beyond what they were supposed to do to, you know, do uh, novel and new research in, in those ways that you said, in, in, you know, looking at the way he worked the zircon crystals to uh, the way he found measured lead levels deep in the ocean to get the different ages of the amounts of lead in the environment at different ages, and then um, with bones, and, and then going all the way through the legal system with uh, the lead and the gasoline and so forth. So it's just remarkable. We're going to take a short break, and when I come back, we'll learn more from Lenny Armstrong about Herb Needleman. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about the remarkable research of two scientists named Claire Patterson and Herb Needleman. And uh, uh, with us today is Lenny Armstrong. Uh, Lenny, how can people learn more about your your work and and contact you and so forth? Sure. You can go to my website at www.informotion, and it's as though it were two words, inform and motion, so you get two M's in the middle, dot biz. And... You know, you have a, a deep knowledge on environmental problems and geology and, and solving these mysteries of lead pollution. And I know you're very concerned about carbon pollution and how it is causing climate change. How did you get interested in climate change? Well, a, a, a number of years ago, maybe a decade ago, I formed my company called Informotion to visualize 
science concepts for educational organizations. This work led me to do a project called Hurricane Lab. Hurricane Lab is a data visualization project in which government hurricane data comes in and the hurricane path and intensity is visualized for the student. In the result of doing this work, the result of doing this work, it just turned out to be a very galvanizing experience for me, and I realized that my newest passion was visualizing climate change, which is a, a very abstract concept otherwise. I have the great fortune to be currently working on a climate literacy project with Turk from Cambridge Math. And I'm, in this project, I'm um, also creating visualizations such as the change in maple syrup sap season due to climate change. I also do work as a climate activist, and my favorite work is organizing deep hating parties. I do this in conjunction with the Somerville Climate Action. Residents who have sometimes whole entire backyards that are paved with asphalt come to me and I help them organize their neighbors and friends um, to come for a big party. And these people get to meet like-minded people and eat good food and hear good music and get good exercise when we manually pry up the asphalt and cart it away. Hmm. Well, I'd like to talk some more about the paving, but um, I'm interested in your work at um, InforMotion, and in particular... Um, this maple syrup sap season project that you're saying. Uh-huh. Yeah, that got me started on the idea of documenting climate change. Um, and then I, al I realized that I would also like to document the restoration of ecosystems using data visualization. And, and that's where you brought in the, uh, the ragweed pollen season? Yes, Work. that's right. I have done an interactive that shows that the ragweed pollen season is lengthening over time, and the amount that it lengthens is greater at the at the uh, more northern latitudes. That's really important, and it's. I've seen your um, diagrams and your your visualizations, and they're really compelling. Thanks. Uh, excellent, excellent work, uh, and people can can see that at. Um, What's the website again? Well, it's not up yet, oh, okay. but it will be shortly. And that's www.informotion.biz, and they can see a number of other projects that I've done. And to learn more about when things are going to be up and to contact you, can they reach you somehow? Sure. Uh, it's easy to get my uh, web address off of my website. Yes. And um, and deep paving is crazy, you know, the, the, uh, you know, we we had an earlier program with uh, Vanessa Rule and Eric Becker, um, and I actually have a picture, I think, in that program or, or with the company, you know, on the web there, of uh, Vanessa swinging a uh, pickaxe at this cement backyard. Um, that that's, tell us more about that. Oh, I I love the idea of uh, improving the Somerville ecosystem one yard at a time. And not only are we improving the ecosystem, but we're helping out with the stormwater problem that Somerville has. Somerville is covered with impervious surfaces, 77% mm. of Somerville, which so, is a, a big stormwater issue. Absolutely. And so one way we can help with the effects of 
too much carbon in the atmosphere, uh, I guess because it's going to cause more storms and more changes in the weather, that right. you know, we must um, be better able to handle the rains and the floods by uh, removing impervious surfaces and getting more pervious surfaces in so that uh, you won't have the flood damages that right now people have downhill in Somerville. Right. Isn't that amazing that you can go from climate change to being concerned about some asphalt in my backyard? <laughs> it's all and related. then have your neighbors come out with pickaxes and start hauling it away. Those are heavy chunks you guys are pulling out. So. They are. Um, so where can uh, where does your work appear? You've you've presented your work at a number of places, right? Yes. Um, several interactives are currently at the Boston Museum of Science and also in the permanent exhibit, the Human Evolution Exhibit and the WeatherWise Exhibit. My work also appears on websites of the Boston Children's Hospital and other educational software companies such as Explore Learning. Mm. Also, I did a project with Turk called um, Windows on Earth in which I animated Earth processes such as the formation of Cape Cod by a glacier, Oh, how great. the Hawaiian islands, islands came to be, and the movement of warm and cold fronts. Many of these animations appear in this exhibit called Windows on Earth, which can be seen in several museums across the U.S. Well, I was hoping you would merge it with your maple syrup work, and, and we could have, you know, pancake plate tectonics and stuff. Great idea. I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, and you were saying, yeah, so you... Guy told us about Cape Cod and, and the um, windows of the earth. Um, and are there ways that people can help you? Yes, I'm currently focusing on eco-informatics, and I'm looking for both clients and collaborators. If you happen, any of you out there happen to know any programmers passionate about the environment and looking to get involved, please send them my way. And they can uh, contact you by when you're up and running, going to uh, infomotion.biz, right? That's right. Yeah. Oh, it, that site is up and running. It's just the um, ragweed pollen ex um, piece that's not currently on the site. That's oh, all. not on the site yet, but people can contact you at information.biz. Yes. Um, and we'll put that on the, um, on, the, on the website page here, too. Great. Um, so you, were, you told us about Claire Patterson. Now let's hear some. Let's learn a little more about Herb Needleman. Can you tell us about him? Herb Needleman was a contemporary of Claire Patterson. He was born in urban Philadelphia. His Jewish mother came from a family of pickle merchants, and his father was a furniture salesman. At the age of ten, he needed to get his hands stitched up, and the doctor made a house call. This doctor so impressed Herb. He said. He looked sharp in a gray tweed suit, which I really envied, and he drove a new Buick. It was then that Herb decided to become a doctor, and at 16 he became the first in his family to go to college. On a scholarship, he got his undergraduate degree and then got his medical degree at the University of Pennsylvania. So off he goes to the university. How did he first get interested in lead? At the time, he didn't know what he was seeing, but he was on a summer job as a laborer at the DuPont chemical plant in New Jersey, and he noticed a group of older workers, 
and they were moving and speaking very slowly and awkwardly. On breaks, they would sit and just stare into space. Much later, Herb realized that they were suffering from severe lead poisoning. When he, But at this point, Claire had a moral conscience, and in medical school, when he saw interns being rude to young black mothers, he was outraged. And how did Herb come to work with lead-poisoned children? His work next brought him to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where he spent many hours there. His assistant chief said about him, Some people saw Herb as a little gruff. He was intense, focused, and tireless. He was concerned about environmental hazards to kids. And it was there at the hospital that Herb saw his first case of lead poisoning. It was a three-year-old girl. Her eyelids drooped. Her mouth was slack. She was silent, and she didn't respond to pinching. Herb immediately suspected lead poisoning, which was a known toxicant in paint. The European nations had been smart enough to ban lead in paint for health reasons. But in the U.S., there was paint, lead in paint on windowsills, baby cribs, and toys. The developing nervous systems in children were much more susceptible to damage than in adults. And it was this experience that made Herb suspect that American pediatricians could be routinely missing cases of lead poisoning. He instituted a special screening program. This program required that each patient over the age of one be automatically tested for lead. When they started to do this, the hospital recorded five times as many poisonings. So they really looked closely at children and not just waiting for adults to be tested. And um, right. They started testing children between the ages of one and two, I guess. Mm. And what did this finding motivate him to do? Well, Herb being Herb kept thinking about the low-income people living in homes with peeling lead paint. He wanted to help them. So he accepted a, psych a psychiatric residency at the Child Guidance Clinic. There, every day, he was in contact with children with limited medical, metal, ah, limited metal capacity, behavioral disorders, and learning disabilities. And he wondered, could any of this have anything to do with lead poisoning? Then, lead was measured in the blood, and this only reflected the lead level at that moment in time. But what about a child's lifelong exposure? Herb, in a flash of insight, realized that lead would be taken up with calcium and stored in teeth. In this way, if he could look at teeth, he could see the, accum the cumulative amounts of lead and get a more accurate picture of a child's ex exposure of lead. And, of course, children lose baby teeth. So he started the Philadelphia Tooth Fairy Project. He asked dentists to give children silver dollars in exchange for their baby teeth. He then compared teeth from urban children with teeth from suburban children. The results were clear. The lead in the teeth of urban children were significantly higher than in the suburban children. Brilliant to look at the different layers in teeth because they're laid down chronologically and be able to see exposures at different times. Yeah. And uh, then he goes on to wonder about intelligence, right? Yes. Um, he came then to Boston, to Harvard University, 
and correlated the lead in the tooth with IQ tests of both the mother and the child. He picked Chelsea and Somerville, which are both working-class neighborhoods in the Boston area, to collect his teeth. And in 1979, he collected teeth for over 2,000 data sets. The results clearly showed that children with high lead levels did significantly less well on the IQ test. And he kept going. Next, he showed that kids with high lead were four times more likely to become juvenile delinquents. Now, so he's, he's Mr. Lead and children, and there's Claire Patterson who's Mr. Lead in the environment. Did the two ever meet? Yes. In the late 1970s, they met at a conference. Herb said of Claire, I thought he was so extreme. I believe lead was bad for you, but not that bad. A couple of years later, Claire invited Herb to a tour of his clean lab. And from then on in, the two men from opposite coasts worked together on the dangers of lead. Now, since the 1900s, you have to remember, lead was big business in America. And U.S. was the world's largest producer of lead. It was used in paint pigments metal coatings, ammunition, lead solder, tin cans, and crystal glass. Both men were passionate that humankind was filling the world with a toxic substance, which was doing irreparable harm to everyone, and especially children. I imagine Herb would then meet some opposition because this lead was such an important business. Oh, yes. In 1981, Herb met Dr. Earnhardt, who became his nemesis for the next 13 years. Dr. Earnhardt's earlier study correlated low-level lead exposure in preschoolers with low IQ scores, as did Herb's. But she later declared that the drop in IQ disappeared in the same children once they were in the first grade and beyond. Herb insisted that her data did indicate effects, but that she was influenced by her industry funding. Dr. Earnhardt retaliated by attacking Herb's scientific credibility, charging that he deliberately skewed his results. And in 1994, he was tried for scientific misconduct. It took many years, another hearing, and a lawsuit for him to be cleared of all significant charges. He's now 85, and he serves on the Science Advisory Committee of the Children's Environmental Health Network. That's amazing. He survived all the lead in the environment and is with us today at 85 years old. Mm-hmm. Herb Needleman, wow. I've given up. Uh, can you tell us about some of their victories? You can imagine that for the lead industry, any delay in regulation was a triumph. Yeah. But lucky for us, due to the perseverance of Claire and Herb and many others like them, 130 years after the French published a paper on the neurotoxic effects of lead, interior lead paint was banned in the U.S. by the EPA. It's interesting to me that the EPA was at that point only eight years old. Nearly a decade later, the EPA removed lead from gasoline. Now, it's six full decades later from when it was first added to gasoline in the first place. But the big surprise was that after lead was taken out of gas, the average American lead level fell down to 2.5% by 
of the 1950s level. And this dramatic reduction occurred over seven years. Lenny, that's like a 95% reduction. Isn't that something? That is amazing. What we can do when we... Nearly 100% of the lead in, in, in Americans was just from the gasoline. Yeah. And the other was saying, oh, your engine will die if we don't put lead in it. And Really? It, yeah. Oh, you know how they dug their heels in to stop that from happening. Yeah. And in, in Europe, they took the lead out in about six months. In America, it only took a decade. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of hard work by Needleman yeah. and, and uh, Patterson. Yeah. Um, now, the, the National uh, Resource Defense Council gets some credit. They were frustrated with the sluggishness of the newly formed EPA, and they filed two successive suits against the EPA, saying that the Clean Air Act empowered the public to sue if the EPA didn't do their job, and the NRDC won both suits. The EPA now says today there is no demonstrated safe concentration of lead in the blood. Wow, that is an accomplishment. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, you know, I guess that's the government. Congratulations to the government for finally, um, you know, seeing that the right thing is done. Mm. My guest is uh, Lenny Armstrong, and we're going to be right back after this break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. 
Wendy, I've enjoyed listening to you tell us about uh, Claire Patterson and Herb Needleman um, and their whole you know, life's accomplishments. Uh, what can we take from those accomplishments and apply them in today's challenges? What we know from them, from Claire Patterson and Herb Needleman, is that the actions of a single person can make a difference. Patterson and Needleman stood up to the land industries. They won by working long and hard to develop the knowledge and then to communicate effectively just how terrible lead poisoning is. I'd like to now contrast this story about lead to today's story about the most dangerous environmental pollutant that we have currently, which is CO2 and other greenhouse gases. CO2 is released into the atmosphere with the burning of fossil fuel and it's causing global temperatures to rise. There's two crucial differences between the lead story and CO2. Unlike lead, the effects due to the rise in CO2 take time to show up. So today, we're probably seeing the results of CO2 levels from the 1980s. The other big difference in CO2 pollution is that the effects will stay with us for more than 1,000 years, even if we were to reduce levels to pre-industrial levels of CO2. And this is due to that slow mixing of the oceans that I talked about. Once the oceans warm up, it takes them a long, long time to cool off again. Yes. Uh, Tell us a bit more about the history of carbon as a pollutant going into the atmosphere. It was more than 100 years ago when a Swedish scientist claimed that burning fossil fuels might result in global warming. Fifty years ago, scientists began measuring CO2 in the atmosphere. Today, a battle rages on that looks very familiar to what we saw with lead. The American public interests are once again pitted against interests of the fossil fuel industries. And the fossil fuel lobby still protects the industry at the expense of the rest of us. Well, why haven't we seen more progress? Sadly, our our own government dollars subsidize the global fossil fuel companies at about a half a trillion each year, plus the political contributions. The same critical questions remain. Who funds science and who evaluates it? Should regulatory action proceed once we have a reasonable anticipation of harm, or should we wait until conclusive proof has been established? Just as Herb and Claire were passionate about lead, today our climate heroes are passionate in their conviction that humankind is once again filling the world with a toxic substance that is doing irreparable harm to everyone. Today that substance is CO2, and the challenges are now on a much greater scale. Big business all around the globe is determined to sell fossil fuel and reap benefits from its sale at the expense of humanity. It was easier to take lead out of paint and gas. But we today in our lives, we've built our entire way of life around fossil fuels. We use these fuels every day to get around and keep us at a comfortable indoor temperature. It's a much bigger challenge to replace oil and gas with renewable energy sources like wind and solar. Yes, replacement is a huge challenge. and. Often we're calling for, the, you know, a lessening of the harmful elements of using oil and gas and an increasing of the wind and solar so that 
It isn't just, you know, switching from one to the other, which might require some giving up stuff. And it's really encouraging that we have so much conclusive proof of the damages caused by too much carbon in the atmosphere so that hopefully, um, you know, how, you know, does dealing with today's problems appear to be just as slow as it was with the lead? Well, the same problems exist in the complex relationship that we saw between science, industry, the government, and the legal system. Only now the global fossil fuel industry is even more powerful. How can we speed up solving this problem then? We need to use every strategy we can find. We need to work from the top down and, at the same time, from the bottom up. I wonder what would happen if each of us puts pressure on our elected officials while at the same time each of us confronts our oil addiction. What if we created new sustainable ways of enjoying life on this beautiful planet? We need to act in time to prevent the destruction of the delicate balance of our global circle of life. Just as with lead, the science is key. However, this time, if we fail, we all fail, and there will be no winners if we collectively poison our home planet for ourselves and for our children and their children. I think of Claire's words, and I hope he's right when he said, if you work long and hard, if you keep adhering to the development of scientific knowledge concerning this matter, you will win. And I hope we can all learn from Claire Patterson and Herb Needleman's heroism and put a stop to our polluting and instead commit to the work of restoring the ecosystems on which all life depends. Thank you, Lenny. Those are wise words indeed that, you know, so much of the, before we can, in order to restore ecosystems, we need to stop polluting and we need to be eyes open, I guess, to uh, the problems around us and uh, not take for granted that throwing something away, be it mercury or nitrogen or lead or carbon, is is okay that anything in excess is bad, and if we're not going to eat it first, we shouldn't be dispo- uh, discharging it or polluting with it or something. Really? Um, and we need to start today. Yes. Well, or don't you see a lot of hope for today. that? Don't you see a lot of people <laughs> doing less polluting than they used to do? I do. I do, which is very heartening. But at the same time, I also feel the enormity of the problem and, and how, how we just need to keep at it and keep doing more. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and there is some frustration that, there's great frustration that more cannot be done from the top down. You know, more uh, cannot be, you know, elected officials can't be as responsive often as we would like them to be to make top-down changes. And you know, there's no way that citizens can regulate gasoline companies, what they, whether they put lead in or not, or whether they gas out too much carbon dioxide. We really need to, to work with governments that can impose you know, responsible actions. And that's the only fair for the businesses that are doing correctly, that they shouldn't watch other businesses, similar businesses, cut corners and be permitted to use the environment as a dumping ground, no cost, you know, and save them money and, and it costs us money. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I really want to thank you for telling us about the lives and the accomplishments of Claire Patterson and Herb Needleman. Uh, Lenny Armstrong, I, I wish you all the best with your work with In4Motion. 
And once again, where should people go to hear about, to learn about your work? www.informmotion.biz. And thanks so much, Rob, for having me on your show. Lenny, th- Lenny Armstrong, thank you very much. And thank you all for listening this time to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Until next time, please don't pollute, turn the thingy off when you don't need it, and recycle and reuse. Three steps to a cleaner environment. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.